Yeah, I feel hot. Maybe it's because I got a long sleeve shirt on. I think so. So I can get this guy's temperature. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I, I'm 97.5 every day. I don't know. Not if you're, you're a little hot, you're hot and sweaty looking. Did you just come down with fever? He was just watching cops. You're looking kind of clammy. Did you just come down with a fever? No. What is the cops thing? I, I missed that joke. Come on, man. Why are you sweating? You was, I was watching cops. Oh, jeez. I, I don't get it. I don't either. Really? No. I'm trying. I want to get it. I really want to get it, but I'm just I'm struggling to get it. Maybe Leah. Got I it. Step Brothers. I. Oh no. Oh, I was like, why are you sweating so much? Oh. Okay. Uh, I was watching. Never cops. seen it. Got it. Never. Oh, God. Don't remember that. I've seen it. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download. This is episode 305, in case anybody was counting. (laughs) We got an awesome guest today, uh, a guy that, I mean, I don't know how long people have been asking for this. um, For for 305 weeks. Yeah, it's been a a long time we've been trying to get Mark on the show. Mark Martin's going to join us. Um, You know, when he retired the last time. Yeah, he moved out west, and it's just not been. Uh, we, you know, we want to get him in studio, talk to him across the table. Well, um, we weren't able to do that uh, due to COVID. We're doing a lot of Zoom calls with our guests. Uh, no guests in the studio for the for the foreseeable future. So we're going to go ahead and bring Mark on the show. It's a great opportunity to do that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Let's get this show started so we can get to Mark Martin. Yeah, yeah, Paul team winning. This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. All team winning, yeah. All team winning, all team winning. Thank you, thank you very much. What are you chirping in there? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'd, 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 I'd have quibbled on that ass. All team winning, all team winning, yeah. I bring a truck right back. I bring a truck right back, yeah. Dustin, Michael, James, Jason. Brian, producer Matthew Dillner, social media Leah Vaughn, co-host Mike Davis. Who is going to mess with the squad? Hey, who is going to mess with the team? I thought when I first met Mike, I thought his teeth were fake. They were that perfect. I'm not lying. Did you know that? I eat chicken and salmon on the road. All right. I eat chicken for lunch, salmon for dinner. Is that right? Yes. Wow. I am diligent. You are, yeah, disciplined. Uniform and disciplined. Yes, you are. <laughs> chicken for lunch, salmon for dinner. There's no red meat on the weekend. Chicken for lunch, salmon for dinner. Don't be messing with it. Mm. All right. But I don't eat salmon for lunch in case something goes wrong. <laughs> really close to diarrhea. <laughs> if something goes wrong with the salmon at lunch, uh, you're screwed the rest of the day. So. <laughs> I love salmon. I'm willing to take that risk. Take that risk. Door wide open, and a whole team in it. Going OT if it's time on the clock. Won't stop till the whole thing finished. Whole team winning. Whole team winning. Yeah. Whole team winning. Whole team winning. Yeah. Whole team winning. Yeah. Whole team winning. Whole team winning. Yeah. Whole team winning. Yeah. Whole team winning. Whole team winning. All right. Whole team winning. Yeah. Whole team winning. We had kebabs. Chicken for lunch, salmon for dinner. Yeah. Don't be messing with it. Don't be messing with it. Oh, my God. That's got to be the best one yet. How long have you been working on that one, Matthew? <laughs> A little while. Oh, my God. I love I having our producer back full time. We've been doing this other television show. we got our producer back, and he comes in hot with salmon and kebabs, baby. <laughs> wipe the tears out of my eyes. Man. That was good, Matthew. you got to make that available to the 
to to the listeners. They're gonna want that. <laughs> you make for, it sound for, like the, I don't know for what, but they'll get they'll get they'll put it to use. Do you even re- recall any time we would have even been talking about those things? I don't remember a thing about that. I don't Anything know. I was, was really um, into your. I was really trying to get my point across. <laughs> about. I just remember the day I had you do the lines, whole team winning, and you were like, "What the hell?" I know. I'm like, "Why am I doing this?" <laughs> now I get it. He's tricky. He is. Yeah, Gotta watch that guy. I know it. Well, man, let's get to the show. Uh, we had a great weekend at, I want to say, at Indianapolis. I was in Charlotte calling the race. And um, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. So, first off, amazing weekend. The um, Indy cars and Xfinity cars on Saturday on the same day. It was great racing. But we also saw a really nice uh, double-digit percentage bump on both the IndyCar and the Xfinity Series viewership. Listen, I know that um, there's not a lot of sports on. I know that. I know that uh, you know people are people are going to say, "Look, you know, all that, that was all that was on TV." Well, it was July Fourth weekend. Yes, people are out there, you know, doing what they want to do on July Fourth, Saturday, Amen, Sunday, hanging out with their friends. Uh, we have had a steady uh, from Fox. Uh, we have a 8% improvement on ratings since the uh, return from, uh, from the COVID break. All right, so if that's uh, the, the consistent 8% improvement, then I would say uh, the, the numbers from Saturday, which were in the teens and 20s for Xfinity and, and, and IndyCar, were an even better number than yeah. we could have expected. All right, so I was really pleased with that, and... The reason, mainly for me, that that's great is because I want more double headers. They may more like more than likely be double headers with the Cup Series instead of the Xfinity Series. But as an Xfinity owner, Xfinity Series owner, I mean, we will take those numbers every day, uh, happy as we can be. We have needed it. some good news uh, to take to our partners, our supporters, our sponsors. Uh, in our series, that's incredible news. So, we, um, you know, that's a great number for us. Awesome number for IndyCar. Uh, having spent a little bit of time over the last year and a half around that series and in, or, in and around those drivers, those drivers in that series are as a, they are as aware of the importance of getting eyeballs and awareness to the series as the as the industry and the series are the president. Uh, the people that work in IndyCar, the drivers are in lockstep. Mm-hmm. That's unusual. Uh, and when you talk to them, the drivers are all saying, what can I do? Where can I be? How can I help? What can I do? They're doing all the media. They don't turn anything down. They're physically going to places to promote their series. and pl- promote. They're, they're, doing, they're scheduled during race weekends when we're not in covid is quite ridiculous with the responsibilities that the IndyCar drivers have. I, I watched it, and, and I've been very impressed with it. They're, they're, they got to love that number that they saw in, as far as viewership for the network. So they're going to want the, they're going to want the doubleheader again. All right, so that was a win for everybody. Hopefully we're going to see that more. Even this year, I don't know what the rule. I don't know what the schedules are. I don't know what everybody else has got on their plate. I don't know what IndyCar's plans are. NASCAR's plans are certainly fluid, mm-hmm. uh, but with the with the states changing, you know, what they're doing, yeah, what they're allowing, everywhere. right? Uh, as far as uh, you know, 
our sporting events, we we can't really set a schedule. So, anyhow, uh, that was very that was very positive, and and I think that that certainly bodes well for us to see more doubleheader events next year and beyond. It's sort of broken the glass and made it really a cool thing to talk about amongst the series. The one hurdle in the past was a bit, maybe a bit of ego. Mm-hmm. Who was going to be the headliner? Who's going to go first? Who's going to go second? We you talked know, about this last week. We did. Yeah. And and now we sort of we've sort of broken the glass to know to know for sure that there's a huge gain for the for the series of IndyCar and, and NASCAR to do it. And you can't turn that down. You can't turn down that opportunity. Okay. Now let's get to Sunday. Sunday. You want to talk about a, a ratings increase. Yeah. Holy moly. <laughs> I, I, so I'm riding down the road with my wife, uh, and the ratings hadn't come out yet. And I'm I, as a broadcaster in the booth, I look for those numbers as soon as they're available. I'm calling my boss. I'm calling uh, other folks at NBC to see if they have information on how we did. I've done that since I started working there. I'm eager to know. That's whether, interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that about. Yeah, you. I'm eager to know whether we're improving. What's the trend? I do that with our own TV show as well during the weeks uh, when the Dale Jr. Download airs on NBCSN. Hey, how'd we do? Uh, you know, were we the best? I want to be the best, right? Yeah. I want to win. Yeah. I, this is this is how I win outside the race car, is by ratings or or succeeding with our viewers, creating something people love. So, I told Amy driving down the road. I said, Hey, uh, you know, Fox has been flat at about eight percent. Above last year, uh, on average, which is good. Yeah, it's a good number. Um, pos- anything good is good. Yeah. You know, we've been yeah. trending down, yep. down, yep. down, down for years. The, you know, things have kind of been going up, upward, but very slightly. So we have to be measured about our expectations. And I told Amy, I said, "Man, if it's flat, I'll be so happy. If it's up five, that'll be amazing." Yeah. It was July Fourth uh, weekend. People are out doing. Um, she said, "You know, maybe on Sunday, everybody was hungover." Had nothing better to do than watch a race, <laughs> but that was her. Uh, that was that was that was her wit. You no, know, it's it totally, totally. Um, I get it too. But there's a valid point in that. Typically, uh, holidays, the, any type of content or yeah. uh, entertainment goes down yeah. because holidays people are out. They're not in front of the TV. Sure. Yeah. And I know that um, you know I've read the I've, you know I've read the response to the ratings. I know that we are the only sport. I understand that. But seriously, we have been the only sport. And our trend has been eight percent. All right, we, that so having been the only sport to come back for the most part, there's been a few others. We've we've improved eight percent. All right, so with that information, you gotta acknowledge that that forty six percent bump over Indy's race last year. And if you want to compare it to Daytona in July, which that's what I would do, I would compare it to the Daytona race in July, same weekend, on the same weekend. Yes. Is up thirty plus percent. Wow, with a rain delay, yeah. which is also well, oh yeah. I believe that the Daytona race also might have had one. I can't it, remember. Of course, I think that last five in a sure. row have. But 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 yeah, we but, had a lightning delay. Um, yeah, a weather delay, whatever it was. W- right, and also also we were on the big network, which really helps. But so was Daytona, I'm sure. Yes, um, it was. It, it's it's an incredible number. I was I promise you, man, with and with with all my heart. I was hoping to be flat, hoping to be plus five percent would would have been a really killer deal. You set the ball low and well, <laughs> I just I was being realistic. Yeah. to be quite honest with you, so thirty plus percent over July's Daytona, I would have lost that bet 
every oh, yeah. time. Everybody I never would've. took it. If you're being honest, was there was there an underlying anxiety of going down from Fox's eight percent increase? Like, does NBC, there always is some competition there? No, no, not even competition. But I'm just saying, like, when you get the torch, you don't want to be the one that you know loses the lead. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so NBC's taking the first. Their first race of the year, off after all of these well, you know, crazy going, times. Yeah. What if they go back down and it's flat, not to eight percent, but zero? Well, how do you feel if that would go, be awful? That would. Yeah. There's all those little anxieties uh, <laughs> that people, you know, probably would think are silly. But I mean, we're, if you're if you're a competitive person, I don't care what your job is, you're going to make it a competition. You're going to make it. You're going to find if, something to motivate yourself. If it matters to you, numbers, absolutely. Yeah, Damn the straight. stats, the numbers, it matters. Yeah, it does. You find what you find those things that sort of drive you to try your try your best. It goes back to Fox this weekend. That'll be interesting to see how the numbers do as uh, as we go race this weekend in Kentucky. Uh, it's, it'll be on Fox. So, sort of a passing of the torch back and forth here, and then finally. Yeah. After the All-Star Race, which will be on Fox as well in Bristol next Wednesday, incredible event. I can't wait to see it. I can't either. You know that number's going to be a nice one. Um, we, you know, we get it back at Texas for NBC. In for the rest weeks. of the year. Yeah, for the rest of the year. Uh, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you, man, there's been a lot of great um, support back and forth between NBC and Fox. <clears throat> That's one of the things that uh, I think people, maybe they know about it, maybe they don't, but NBC pulls – for Fox to do well. Absolutely. All right, because if their numbers are great, ten, basically it's like a relay race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're both on the same team, and we're going to pass that baton mid-race. So we need them to have a great run. All right, so when they pass the baton to us, we can continue that trend. Um, and so, you know, I think the, I think this, the pressure really, uh, and this is a compliment, the pressure is really on Fox. They start the season – they start. They 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 have to create the storylines. Um, so the momentum. Yeah, they create the momentum. They have a pretty challenging situation being the first to go in the relay race. Yeah, and uh, we kind of get to see the lay of the land and the storylines, and we pick we get the baton with basically the picture painted in front of us. They start with a blank canvas. Mm. Um, it's a very interesting thing. Anyhow, I want to also say. I I didn't know how much I needed to get back in that booth, uh, and, and I don't know if this will uh, make sense, but man, being stuck at home, not working, not doing anything, it's been great to be with my family, be with my wife, and spend more time with Isla. Um, but to, but to be honest with you, man, it um, it was a uh, I was losing uh, I don't know I was losing part of myself. Mm. I, I didn't even realize it, and and so uh, you know when I got back into the booth. Um, I was like, man, I, I really, I really do need this purpose, right? I really do need this job. This, this, I need to be part of a, I, I, I need that for myself to be part of a team, part of a puzzle, part of a working, uh, mechanical, uh, thing that does, that produces something, right? That develops something. And I've always had that. I've always had that as a race car driver, part of a race team, part of my dad's company, part of HMS, being a piece, you know, on the chessboard, right? And um, and I've always wondered if I need that now. Do I need that? Do I need to keep working? Do I need to? Do, should I just not work and just be with my family and just spend the rest of my life just just being a being a dad? And uh, right now, the answer is absolutely not. Uh, when I well, I had a little break, you know, being that Fox has the race season, and um, you know, you, you you really 
doing a lot of self-reflection, sitting at home, buckled down with your family uh, throughout all this. Uh, and I was wondering, I was like, what, what, what am I doing? Uh, what do I need to be doing? Am I doing what I should be doing? And, uh, God, I mean, throughout through this weekend, it was a very awakening sort of, uh, obvious, uh, experience as I was in the booth that this really makes me happy. This really gives me uh purpose. Uh, everybody needs that in their life, uh, for sure. Whether it is being a father, nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you want to be a 24-7 father. Everybody needs a little balance in their life. For sure. Uh, my, my goodness, man. I had no idea. I don't know why that's – I don't know why I need to tell you that, or, or but I had no – it was a really big rel- revelation in, in, in the booth this weekend for me personally. It makes sense. And so um, – And I, I want to ask you more questions about that. But sure. one thing it does remind me is that, you know, before COVID – if you would have taken a poll out, everybody in the room's like, who enjoys going to the office every day and sitting there from, you know, nine to five or eight to five, whatever it is our hours are. And, you know, everybody would be like, no, no, I, I'd love to not be in the office. But after, after two months of being at home, oh, boy, we couldn't wait to get back to the office. <laughs> we couldn't wait. Show me an office. Yeah. Show me work. And it's, it's a good reminder. And I think you went through the same experience. Is that, you know what? I mean, when you love what you do, and this is a good tell, is when you love what you do, you can't wait to get back to it. And you found that out this weekend. Yeah. Now, what was, that, what was the setup like? like what, so how different was it? And, and I was curious about y'all's chemistry, which it didn't seem to miss a beat. We were in the booth that we use at Charlotte Motor Speedway, so the environment was identical to uh, what we experienced at the racetrack. And I, could, uh, I, have, a, I have a screen in front of me uh, which is the program, which you're seeing at home. I have another screen above that that has timing and scoring and a few other cameras. And I have, you know, my headphones on with my producer in my ear, and, and I can hear the guys. And the I producer a, is where? Marv it, is in a truck uh, down on... In Charlotte. In Charlotte. Okay. Just downstairs. Okay. Uh, below the booth. It, it's really similar. It's extremely it. similar. The only thing we're missing is just being able to look out the window and seeing the action. Uh, and there's a couple, you know, there's, so that's, that's important because Steve and Burton both love to watch the pit cycles, especially under green flag. They want to be able to see a guy coming to pit road. Uh, one of the, say the leaders, there's a race between Harvick and Denny. They're going to pit under green. They want to be able to watch that process of Denny coming down pit road, Harvick then coming down pit road a lap later. They want to watch the blend off of turn two is they're exiting pit road and who's in the lead. And they want to explain that, talk about that, tell people what to be watching for. And they can't do that because we don't have that visual and we don't have the opportunity to see as many cameras as we typically can see at a live race. I never really was, or I haven't gotten to the point in my broadcasting history or experience to be able to do that as well as they do it. I'm sitting there basically watching the program, calling the race, (laughs) just like I've always done. So for me, it was really as comfortable as being at the actual racetrack. Uh, I worried that we wouldn't have the energy um, because we're not seeing the event live, but the energy was there. We're so excited to be there. It didn't matter. We had plenty of energy. Um, Let's talk about Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy Johnson, uh, you know, news is out there. If you haven't heard, I don't know how you haven't heard it. Jimmy uh, has COVID and uh, missed the race this weekend. Uh, I think everybody's just hoping he's doing well. Uh, His wife as well has has been tested positive, uh, so we're wishing them the best. 
He's explained uh, how challenging, challenging and, and emotional this is uh, in, in, relationship, in relation to his kids, uh, trying to take care of them, feed them. Uh, they're scared. Uh, they don't know what's going on with their mommy and daddy. And um, so that's a very, uh, very hard, hard to hear uh, as, a, you know, as a parent. So uh, we're wishing them well. Uh, but then, you know, you got to look about the, uh, the logistics and, and, and mechanics of it as far as how it, how it uh, pertains to his racing and the, and the series, the other drivers. Uh, Jimmy missed the race, missed a lot of opportunity to get points there Sunday. Uh, how long will that continue? He missed the playoffs for the first time last year in his career. He could potentially miss the playoffs again if he has to miss too many races. How many races will he miss? And... Uh, yeah, will that affect his opportunity to make the playoffs? I think he had a good enough situ- He was in a good enough situation at about sixty plus points ahead of the cutoff line to make the playoffs. But now missing this race is it's going to put him in jeopardy. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Picture this: it's blazing hot outside, and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system, and there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. We are live, guys. Oh, God, we were going live. Yeah, we are live. (laughs) (laughs) We are live. (laughs) Hey, everybody, it's Dale Jr. Welcome to the Ask Jr. portion of the show. This this portion of the show, man, it's brought to you by Xfinity. (laughs) It is. Uh, They are a uh, premier partner for NASCAR and your partner for fast internet. I'm a customer, believe it or not. I I believe it. Yeah, I have Xfinity service, and I just got it. Um, I think around February. Got to 200 megs. Ooh. So I'm loving it. So, uh, yeah, the Ask Junior portion of the show. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks you. Uh, thanks for uh, subscribing to our YouTube channel, at Dirty Mo Media. I know you guys love the content there. We got a lot of it coming out. Um, don't forget, Lost Speedways, July 15th on Peacock, um, our streaming network uh, for NBC. It's a streaming platform that's coming out. Um so uh, we got Lost Speedways, great TV show that I created for you guys. Mm. I hope you'll enjoy it. July 15th. Um, you so can get it on Xfinity, man. For, for well, Peacock. yeah, if you have an Xfinity, so a lot of people are like, man, I don't want to buy another streaming service. But if you have Xfinity, you get it for free. And so there, yeah, hopefully you have Xfinity. Oh, man. All right, so let's, let's go ahead. Uh, Leah's going to help us as usual. Uh, Leah's right here on the TV in front of me. Um, Leah's going to help us with the questions you guys got. All right, Dale. First question coming from Michael Batten. Is there anything NASCAR can do for the safety of pit crew members, especially on tracks with a narrow pit road? Mm. I, I don't know what NASCAR could, can, can do in that situation other than bring pit road speed even slower. You know, maybe under yellow flag conditions, the pit road speed can be slower. That'd be difficult for the drivers, though, if they have to remember to be 
35 under yellow and then 55 under green. I don't know what the answer is. I think if the you know when I was watching this happen, um, that was the only thing that popped into my mind in that moment. Knee jerk reaction. You got to be careful with those, but slowing the cars down. If the cars are going slower, that chain reaction is less violent, less cars involved in it, less people weaving uh, recklessly out of the way, and uh, maybe it doesn't happen. You can't. You can't be sure. Uh, there's still going to be cars crashing, damaging themselves, but maybe it doesn't spill into uh, you know the cars that are being being pitted by the crews at that particular point. That's the only thing I can think of. This is just a it, it's a very very narrow pit road, 24 feet from wall to wall. If you've got a car in the pit stall on the inside of you, that's that's taking up at least 10, uh, 10 or 10, you know, yeah, 10 feet probably at the minimum. So now you got 14 feet, maybe even less than that, 12 feet for the uh, rest of the cars to travel down pit road, pull into their boxes, pull out of their boxes. Uh, there's not many races that we have at Indy where under during those first few pit stops when there's basically the entire field on the lead lap that we don't have damage. We don't have cars banging into each other, be, you know, really getting serious damage that uh, either knocks them out of the race or ruins, ruins any shot at uh, getting a good finish. We had the same thing last year. So... It's just a treacherous pit road. Um, I'm sure NASCAR is going to look into it. And typically when something like this happens, they make a change. You know, So don't be surprised if we see something coming down the pipe. A lot of questions. Uh, people really seem to enjoy the NASCAR IndyCar doubleheader on Saturday. So Patrick Lyons, um, aside from Indy, where else could we see an IndyCar NASCAR doubleheader? Oh, man. Uh, you know, the Roval, maybe? Um, Watkins Glen? I mean, Sonoma? All the road courses... Uh, fit into that i didn't even i haven't even thought past a road course you know daytona somebody in our youtube chat daytona i don't know about that i don't know about indy cars going around daytona i don't know if they would be they'd be wanting to you know even if they ran the road course um it's possible but uh i've got a suggestion richmond they already run at richmond don't they i i just think richmond's just the coolest little track i think that would be an awesome doubleheader really yes yeah i uh I have to think beyond, you know, maybe Texas might be a good one. I have to think where where does the IndyCar, uh, you know, let's think about where IndyCar runs that Cup doesn't run. Road Atlanta, Road America, mm-hmm. places like that, that that might be great uh, new venues for the Cup Series to go. Where we could be, uh, we could be a guest of the IndyCar Series that they, they've got a tradition there and they've got some history there in that, that particular racetrack, and we could go be uh, <laughs> racing there for the first time. Hey, man, it doesn't they, they don't always have to be coming to us. You know, it could be uh this could be this is a two way street here, and and certainly when we're making this uh, connection with IndyCar and we're having this sort of a, a venture together, we wanna we wanna you know share the share the success, and they got they're gonna headline some some events, and we'll headline some events, and I'm sure um, they're working all that out. Hey, the the, uh, the the city courses, where do they run? City uh, courses, yeah, yeah like St. Pete. Yeah. that'd be fun. Yeah, man, let's go to Surfers Paradise. There you go. Um, obviously, the music industry lost a great one yesterday, and Charlie Daniels, uh, mm. Robert Olmsted, is asking if you have any memories of Charlie. I do. Um, I don't even remember when this was. It was right around the time when Martin Trex Jr. was racing in the Xfinity Series for us at Chance 2. Uh, Charlie came to play in Charlotte, and me and uh, Truex, TJ Majors, my buddy Sean Brawley, and, and uh, a bunch of other guys – went uh to see him play 
he had us uh there was a uh they he, he had a coach there or bus or whatever and, and uh we we went up in there and sat and talked to him for a while uh so yeah i got to meet him a long time ago uh over probably 12 15 years ago and then he played uh recently he played at the hendrick motorsports uh end of the year party christmas party whatever you want to call that um it's a bit of a celebration in the company uh, where all the employees come to an event and uh, they kind of hand out some awards and whatnot. And he played that event, and it was really cool to to see him there. But um, yeah, he was uh, he was one of the greats. Was he a good person? I mean, like when you were being the bus with him. Oh, very nice conversationalist. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it he was very um, he was a race fan. So when I met him that day back then, twelve whenever how many years ago, fifteen years ago. He 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 said adamantly, "I don't watch much cup racing. I love the Xfinity series." Wow. He knew Martin really well because he watches that. He was at that time a big fan of that series and the younger drivers and watching these guys sort of make their way and 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 try to get into the Cup series. And he was like, "You know, I love that Xfinity series." There's you know, he's like one of those guys. It's a big college football fan. Maybe doesn't watch the NFL. Right. Right. What? What's the point you, of me? Yeah, me. I, yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know what you were getting yeah. at there, but yeah, I'm a college You're football kinda, guy. Yeah. I don't. I don't much care about the NFL. I'm like, man, Mike does. Mike used to be in our fantasy football league, and he's like, yeah, I'm not really much of an NFL fan. You know, I'm just gonna. I'm bowing out of the league. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm that's kind of yeah. That's kind of like um, yeah. So that's Charlie's interesting. Different. You don't hear many people that just like I just oh, watch Xfinity racing. I mean, that, I that's ha- good for them. He gave me uh, the bow that he used to play that night, and I have it in a case. Oh wow. That's cool. Why is that not in our studio? Because it's in a a case. (laughs) Because it's where he doesn't want it in the studio. I suppose I could bring it over here. No, it's okay. That's all right. Uh, Jeffrey Davis is watching on YouTube, and he wants to know if you have any thoughts on three-digit numbers. Oh, no. Let's not do it. Look at Matthew. Matthew, Oh, no. Matthew's upset. You've hurt. Well, I don't know, y'all. That's a good question. Um, Ooh. I don't know about that. <laughs> they didn't look good on NASCAR. What was it? 09 that had it, Dale? Is this like a random question, Lee, or has this been in the news or what? No, what, what? it's just, just a, a random. No. I think it's yeah. just a good It's a good question on the heels of number placement on the cars. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about you know bringing the, you know, moving the numbers around to be able to accommodate uh, better positioning for primary sponsors and so forth, and uh, which we've debated heavily, and and obviously, absolutely, man. My my opinion on that has has not been concrete as I felt like it might have been as far as the numbers moving. Um, I've kind of warmed up to the number position being kind of anywhere on the side of the car, just as long. I don't really like it on the quarter panel behind the rear tire. Don't like that. Uh, but anywhere in between the wheels, I'm pretty happy with. Uh, I got to compromise, right? So we all got to compromise a little bit. We can't just be so hard-headed that it's just got to be one way. I'm going to help you. You, you. you don't want the three numbers, three-digit numbers, because that mean, that makes the number smaller. And I don't you know about don't, that. It, not, not always. Not always. Um, not not I, always. I'm not. Well, 111 will, will probably be big. But <laughs> yeah. other than that. <laughs> Do you know the last uh, three-digit car number that won a race in Cup? Sure. Tell us. Uh, Wood Brothers. Yeah. 121. Bingo. Yeah. Dan Gurney? Yes, 1968. Right. Riverside. Yes. Oh, man. Damn, look at, Damn, look at, look at you, at me Rain go. Man. Look Ra- at me go. Rain, Rain man. man just showed up. <laughs> Mark Train is over here going, I want in on this. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, you know, and, 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 and let's, let's talk about it. Okay, there's a great example. 
That didn't bother me a bit. All right, so just if it's going to get brought up and it's going to become a thing again, I'm not going to I'm not going to go get triggered and be like, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> it didn't bother me back then. He's not going to go on Nashville fairgrounds on anybody. Yeah. So <laughs> triple numbers. If somebody really wants one, let let them run one. Okay. What about double digits with a with a letter? Yeah. Ooh, like an X89. Like old dirt cars. Yeah. yeah. I like the X numbers. Six, number 6K or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm good with numbers. I always liked them when they were inside the – the letter was inside the uh, number. The number. 3K. Yeah. 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 Mousy Campster. Because, you know, they, they used to have the North and South or yeah. the East and West uh, K&N series compete yep. against each other, and they, had, they would have that letter just to be able to depict who was from what region. And uh, – and you certainly see it a ton in 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 uh, dirt uh, racing, with it, whether it's sprint cars or, or or late models. You know, a lot of letters. But I'm great with that. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Bring it on, he says. Okay. Just keep them numbers beside, in between the wheels, man. <laughs> 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 one number is on the front. One number's in the middle. One <laughs> number's on the uh, rear quarter panel. Spread them out. <laughs> All right, one more question. This one coming all the way from Australia, um, from Adam Berg. Hi, Dale. I'm from Australia and would love to see a NASCAR race live. I've never been to the state, so I want for my first NASCAR race to be an experience. Where should he go? Oh Best my God. experience. Come hey, first Wars. off, big big fan of Australia. Um, me, I was just telling Amy we were just talking about this yesterday. How I'm like, man, we gotta go. Um, I'm dying to take Amy there, and she's like, when are we going? Because we're we're in the middle of having kids, right? So we can't go anywhere. Quit having kids, you can go to Australia. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I also want to go to Dawson City in Canada. I watched this documentary uh, about these guys that floated 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 down the Yukon River. It was an old documentary. Uh They stopped in Dawson City. looks pretty fun. Anyhow. Australia to Dawson City. Back to Australia. Um, You know, the first race that I would go to is man, if this all-star race sticks at Bristol, got to go to that. Um, when I was a little boy, I would, I wouldn't really get too bent out of shape if I was not, not able to go to this race or that race or any, you know, no, I knew that school and things were going to be obstacles to going to all of the races. I wanted to go to every race and sometimes I didn't get to go. Uh, and, and, and it sucked, but it was okay. The one that was not okay, the one that it it was breaking my heart, the one that I was going to throw a fit, the one that I was going to refuse to miss would be the night race at Bristol. Um, the, the, that track is, uh, it's a stadium and it's just a beautiful structure, impressive to see in person. The racing there is always dynamite. And, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would say, cause you can, you know, if I say, if I say Daytona, the Daytona 500, certainly an amazing race, but you know, when you're at such a big venue for your first event, you really only experience it, whatever's around you in that vicinity. Uh, and you only experience the race from one, one perspective that's that, you know, you're limited on being able to really see what the cars are doing in turn two or down the back straightaway and, uh, pit, pit road. You, you kind of watch the guys in front of you, but 
can't see really what's happening to the end of pit road. Wherever you are, you know, you kind of limited uh, on the experience. At Bristol, man, you, you're it's all right there in front of you. It's all within arm's reach, and it's just carved into this mountain. It's a cool thing, uh, and it's still even after the changes and, and evolution of that racetrack over the years, it to me is still the best ticket, that night race at Bristol. I look at it like this, like if I'm trying to send somebody to the racetrack that's maybe not even interested, all right, which one would you send them to? One that you know is going to hook them. One that you know is going to, they're going to look at it and go, whoa, this is awesome. Bristol night race. Mike, you got a different opinion. I do. Go ahead. I wouldn't go give them the best right off the bat. Oh, I why would not? give. It, I would get because then it, because then the second race. I don't want to take any chances. I would, not. I would give them. them Daytona first because it's not going to disappoint, and then bring them to a smaller track where no. the intimacy. Hold up, stop. Let me finish. The yeah. intimacy then captivates you, regardless of what the race is, and you already know Bristol's going to deliver. Man, the the. The change from the big super speedway and going down to the intimacy of a short track is amazing. And I know that because I went to Talladega my whole life yeah. uh, first. And then when I went to something, my second race, my second cup race after going to Talladega for years and years was Charlotte. I couldn't believe how close I was getting to see and I could see the entire track. Charlotte felt like a short track to me because it was, the th- you know, and I couldn't believe it. And I was amazed by it. Then you go to Bristol and now it's a game changer. Yeah. And now you're hooked. I think the you, I think that's how I You do got it. you want him to go to three events to get hooked. I want him hooked in that first one. But Daytona would do it. I'm not 100% confident in that. Ooh. I, really? Listen. I am 100% confident in Bristol Night Race. Uh-huh. Doing the oh. job, oh, yeah. getting them in, get making fans. They're going to Daytona once they go to Bristol. Okay. I yeah. guarantee you that. Because if they go, they fall in love with it at that first race, then they're going to want to go to the biggest event. Yeah, of the year. maybe it has the same effect on the right. enormity of it. I mean, I one think way you're or another. knocked down the same dominoes, Mike. <laughs> either way, let's talk about it for ten more minutes. Yeah, um, I think I, you knocked down the same dominoes either way. Right, right. It has the same effect. Yeah. All right, so there you go, uh, Mister Australia. We've given you your next hey, three races. <laughs> I hope he's watching right now because I know it's he probably not. <laughs> well, I know it's in the middle of the night over there or whatever, but uh, or maybe it's time to go to bed. Uh, but we appreciate everybody listening overseas, Australia, wherever you're from. Uh, the international uh, viewers and supporters really always impress me because that, that takes a little bit of effort, but uh, appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you got to be fast in our sport. And Xfinity, they know a thing or two about that. With Xfinity, get blazing fast. Wi-Fi without any pit stops. Xfinity X5 delivers the speed, coverage, security, and control that you need to stay connected to NASCAR all season long. This is beyond Wi-Fi. This is X-Fi. And keep your questions rolling in to at Xfinity Racing on Twitter using hashtag AskJunior for a chance to have your questions answered by Dale Jr. himself. Mike, we're so proud to partner with Xfinity, the premier partner of NASCAR. NASCAR history and heritage come alive at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Celebrate my fellow inductees Donnie Allison, Jimmy Johnson, and Chad Knauss with their class of 2024 artifacts enshrined in the Hall of Honor.
Don't miss the Ford Performance Showcase. It's a new inside NASCAR exhibit that showcases the Ford Mustang's next-gen car through its design and innovation. The latest edition of Glory Road explores over 75 years of racing history with its cool 33-degree banking and 19 cars on display. On Mondays and Fridays, there's guided tours that take you behind the scenes with incredible stories and access to a NASCAR Hall of Fame insider. Or you can explore the hall at your own pace with the new mobile hub. It's a digital experience. Get behind the wheel of a realistic iRacing simulator. Or you can learn how fast-paced pit stops work with the Pit Crew Challenge. From the legends who shaped the sport to the new heroes earning a spot in the record books, the NASCAR Hall of Fame delivers an unforgettable experience. Book your visit to the hall today at nascarhall.com. Hey. Look at him. You're looking good, man. All right, everybody. Just as promised, a man that I know everybody's been waiting for to come onto this show. Mark, we've been so excited about the opportunity to speak to you this week. Uh, so thank you, Mark Martin. Welcome. Excited to be on with you, Dale. Even got a headset. Yep. Now, this is a professional right here. Well, I, I do my podcast from this uh, computer as well. Yeah. So how do you enjoy that? You, you enjoy doing the podcast? No, I don't like it at all. It's just, <laughs> it's a pain in the ass, but, and you know, we just do it. We're just doing them a document every year of my career. Yeah. I saw you. Uh, I thought that was an incredible uh, idea. To be honest with you. Cause it's thorough. Fans are going to want to hear different part, you know, hear about different stories from different parts of your career. And now they can go to the chapter for, you know, for, for that particular podcast and really get that information. It's pretty smart. Yeah. You know, 1981 is a really interesting year. 80. I hadn't got to 09 yet. We're up to, uh, Oh, one. I think we've got a, we got 99 and 2000 coming out and need to get on it and get Oh one, you know, get on through the rest of them. But you know, the fun part is the early years in my career, the tow truck was as big a story as the, uh, you know, the tow rig. I mean, there were so much fun talking about the tow. And, you know, the first four or five years was amazing. You know, it was a big deal. Wow. I bet. Yeah. Everybody has a good tow truck story. Yes, sir. Well, let's get right to it so we don't waste any time. Uh, what was your first race car? It was a 55 Chevrolet. Um, they had a V8 class, which would be the late model today, and a six-cylinder class, which would be considered probably a street stalker almost um and so we got a 55 chevy out of the weeds and used water pipe and put roll cage in it took the motor out and uh and uh hopped it up and it was uh it was a six-cylinder uh 55 chevy it started in 1974 uh racing there in arkansas with that what tracks so locust grove uh, it's called uh Batesville Speedway now, but at yeah. the time it was called Locust Grove or Independence County Raceway. Uh, every Friday night and every Saturday night, I'd go to Benton Speedboat, which is Benton, Arkansas. It's now called I-30 Speedway. So uh, I'd race Friday and Saturday night. And uh, Why did you want to race? I wasn't any good at anything. Um, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I couldn't play basketball, couldn't play, play football. I wasn't very good at baseball. And I wasn't good at anything. And um, 
I could, uh, I could drive a car. I could ride a motorcycle before I could really drive a car. And then I could really drive a car. Well, and it was something that I was pretty good at right from the start. And everybody likes to be good at something. Yeah. Was your family, what connected you to motorsports though? Was your, was your family in it? Was, how did you, were you going with someone else? Was there a garage down the street? My dad, uh, was a race enthusiast of any kind. Um, we went to drag races and we went to the Daytona 500, I think about 72 or 73. Wow. And we sat in the stands and uh, watched the races. And, um, you know, so we were just a fan. And we went every Friday night. We'd go out uh, in 73. We'd go out to the dirt track, at local dirt track and Batesville Speedway and hang out in the pits. And the last night of the season... 73 i just we were standing there and i looked at him and i my dad and i said let's build me one of these for next year wow i'll be dang but whose 55 chevy was this and whose weeds did you pull them out of dude i don't know that hey i just i i need to ask larry shaw if he knows where the car came from but it was just a old car oh. out in the weeds yeah oh and Lord. we pulled it <laughs> we pulled it out pulled the motor out of it and sent it to lenati cams in memphis and had them put a cam in it and hop it all up. And then we went out for the first practice night out there, and I made four or five laps, and a rod came through the block. So we uh, were in trouble. So we went to the guy who was winning all the races, at, uh, Wayne Brooks, and we asked him if he had an engine. And he says, well, I got an old wore-out standby backup engine uh, I'll you know let you use. And then we can work on, you know, it takes us about a month to build you one. We can work on building you an engine. So we took that old standby engine and it ran so awesome. We didn't want to give it back. <laughs> uh, and, you know, about, it took us, a, you know, a little bit to get going, but we, 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 we beat him a few times, you know, with that thing. And that was pretty cool. You beat him with his own engine. Yes, sir. That's when fun. did you win your first race? It was sometime we started racing, I think April. And I'm just going to guess I, I I've got the journals. So it probably says there at the museum, I've got the journal of every, you know, every race of 74, 75. And, um, so it probably says, but I'm going to guess by May. Oh man. Fast. And, and how old were you? Uh, I was 15. What? I didn't have a, I didn't have a driver's license, which didn't make any difference because the rules and the laws didn't apply to us anyway the way we looked at things and I had had, um, I probably had had six, no driver's license tickets by the time I did get my driver's license. <laughs> I was, I was driving, I had my own car and was driving at 14. So you drove uh, all over the roads. And <laughs> did, did you know who owned that car or is, is there somebody <laughs> still looking for the 55 Chevy and, and everything else you drove? <laughs> I didn't drive that car on the road. I actually had a Chevy Blazer, and I drove to school at fourteen and fifteen. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! Did you know the you know the cops or something? I mean, what's the connection? How do you get away with all this stuff? Uh, I got tickets, but my bad. My dad, which is a whole other story. My dad got really mad. Uh, there was one day on a Sunday. He said, "Mark, he probably wanted me out of his hair." And we were at home and he said, go down to the trucking company and check on the, uh, the reefer units on the trailers, make sure they're all running. So I went, I got a, I got a ticket for no driver's license. I came home, 
he was so furious and mad. He made me jump in the car with him. He tore out. He found the guy parked in the restaurant parking lot. He burned a 360 around it, him, and then cussed him out. And I was scared, horrified, you know. <laughs> Nothing ever happened. My dad was, I mean, they should do a movie about my dad. He's, there's so many insane stories about him. What was his name? Julian. Oh, yeah. Julian Martin. The life story of Julian Martin. Yeah. That is a movie. Yeah, he was, uh, his nickname was Cat the cat because he you know he should have been dead at least eight times before it finally got him <laughs> you should do a podcast just on him yeah i know yeah i know you race uh i've seen your pictures you know there's a lot there's a lot of people that post pictures of you from the 70s there's some dirt pictures of you like you ran asphalt and dirt it how much dirt experience did you have, and, and what was your opinion of – I know you ended up on asphalt and ASA and all that years later and dominated, but what was your opinion of racing on dirt? So the first two years I ran the six-cylinder division, and then uh, my third year in 76, we built a, a late model. Uh, and so we uh, – my dad was all about power. So we built this car, and it was a tank. Larry Phillips built the chassis for us and uh, it was heavy. And my dad had a, a 496, uh, a 496 cubic inch big block built for it. So the car weighed 3,200 pounds. It was probably 54% nose weight. And I couldn't steer the car. I was 110 pounds, uh, 17 years old. And, and I just couldn't keep up with the front, you know, the front tires. So we ran it two or three weeks and then we went to the junkyard and got all the stuff to put power steering on it. Once we put power steering on it, we started winning races right away. So by the fall, we were traveling out, out of state to the big races to be challenged because it wasn't any fun. We wanted to always be challenged. And so by the end of the season, we were traveling all over the place. There were no asphalt uh, racetracks in Arkansas. Uh, well, Fort Smith, Arkansas, but it was 200 miles away. So there was no, the Daytona 500 was not on dirt. It was on asphalt. Yeah. And if we're going to travel that far, we may as well be running asphalt. So mm. we built an asphalt car, a pavement car, late model for, uh, for 77. And, uh, I look back on it and I think the dirt track racing was a, was a big asset to me. Uh, at that early age to really learn and refine my car control. I think today, my, my opinion of dirt racing today is it's almost a must. If you don't, you, you've got to learn car control in these things because you have to, if you want to compete on the very top level, you have to run the car in a slip. I mean, there's three, you know, Dale, there's two or three tenths yeah. between just running the car perfectly straight and driving it a little harder and running it, you know, where it's actually slipping a little bit. And you have to have car control to do that. Dang. That's interesting. I've never heard it put so so uh, smartly. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's true. Trying to describe to somebody the difference between good and great mm. is the guy that can drive it in that slip, always sort of sliding, and the guy that drives it straight. There's mm. some good race car drivers that don't drive it side, you know, drive it in a slip. But the great ones do. And you learned that in the, the short time you were dirt racing? Well, I learned car control, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and refined it. 
Uh, when I started pavement racing, I don't remember running the car in a slip, but certainly we ran insanely good. I mean, the story, the story is, so we go to Ed Howe. Well, you got to go to 1977 on my podcast to hear the whole story. We go to Ed Howe, have him build us a chassis, but I wanted five, five on five lugs, not the big old ugly hubs. Uh-huh. And I put, I, we wanted to put Hearst Earhart brakes, NASCAR brakes on it and all that stuff. And he had all this cheap stuff, but it was light. So anyway, we took it home, built it and finished it and took it back to Ed's to have him set it up. And he totally squashed us. He embarrassed and humiliated us because the car was too heavy and it wouldn't get the weight distribution that he wanted and all that stuff. So we jacked the car up and we put, took all that stuff off and put the lighter hubs and all that stuff on it. And we ordered some aluminum heads. We were going to get some aluminum heads because they were just starting to get good. And in order to get two months experience in, in a week and a half, we're going to go to New Smyrna for the World Series of Asphalt Racing. Right. Speed weeks, nine nights in a row, and we're going to do that. Well, the, I don't know nothing about tires. I see cars with Hoosier tires on them. So I got a set of Hoosier tires, and we don't run that good the first night. And they wreck right in front of me in the heat race, and I put it in the wall and bend the snout something terrible. And so we're out two nights, but my dad calls Ed, and Ed's down there, and he comes and looks at the car, and he says, well, it's bent, but you might as well put it back together and get the boys some experience. And so it took us two nights to get it all rebuilt, the radiator in it, because it was just killed. And so we missed two nights. So we went out there the fourth night. Well, Jody Ridley had been, uh, was on a Firestone tire deal, and he had been out there, and he blew a motor up the first night, the second night, and the third night. He didn't have nothing left. So we went home. He went home. And so we're unloading the car. And for some weird reason, the guys from Firestone Tire come over and ask me if we want to try a set of tires. No charge. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So we roll a, a set of wheels over there and come back. It's number, they're scuffs. They're 98. You know, they're Jody Ridley scuffs. And we bolt them on the car. And dude, we timed in third. Uh-huh. <laughs> And we made the top eight the rest of speed weeks. And it ran so good, bent with a snout bent up an inch in the right front. We left it like that. (laughs) When we got home, we didn't fix it. We started racing it all over the country until I really bent it. We we were dumb as heck. We were, we thought it was magic. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's magic. This thing will fly, you know, we figured it out. This is the secret. How did you uh-huh. fu- when you're coming up to them? Like, uh, I mean, you're t- you're talking about you and and your dad. How were you funding the racing? My dad was funding it. Okay, um, you know, it was. What uh, was the family business? Trucking company. He started it the year I was born, 1959, with one truck, and he was probably running 20 20 trucks at that time. And before I started racing, you know, I learned to drive a truck. Um, really early age. My dad was crazy. I was probably 12 years old and we would take a summer trip every year. Well, I'm going to say I was 12 and he let me drive at night. He finally got brave enough to get out of the seat, get back, you know, in the, either the bunk or in the passenger seat. 
and all our trucks, all his trucks were fast, of course. And so I'm driving this thing and it's nighttime and I'm passing trucks and he reaches over and flips on the dome light so that the other driver can see that he's getting passed by a little kid. <laughs> by a 12 year old at night. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Truck, yeah. So my dad, it was really cool. Steve Mill would always say, make a mention of something about flip that dome light on. Yeah. Flip that by. dome light. That's that hilarious. Is, wow. He's driving <laughs> trucks at 12. I mean, no wonder you got this thing figured out. You said you weren't good at anything. My gosh, you were driving trucks at 12. Yeah. So I'd go down to the trucking company on Saturday, every Saturday, and wash trucks just so I'd get to park them. So instead of back <laughs> pulling them up there and washing them and then backing them back in, when I'd finish washing them, I'd go around the block in order to back it back in its spot. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I would wash trucks just so I'd get to take them around the block. So yeah, drive, driving was my thing. I could do that. Okay, since we have Mark here with us on the download, we decided to make him part of our Valvoline segment. So, Absolutely. Mark, yeah. Valvoline is a big supporter of this show, and they were a huge supporter of you back in the day. And since they are the original motor oil, they are all about originals. So, what's the most original person? Who is the most original person that you ever worked with? Oh, I think uh, you know, I, I worked with a lot of greats, some of the greatest in NASCAR history. One of the coolest people that I worked with was Rodney Childers because he was a very successful race car driver. And I think that he could visualize and I think he could feel what I would describe to him. And I think that's one of the keys to Rodney's success. Uh, You know, on top of being really smart and his work ethic is second to none, but I think his experience as a driver really makes him uh, better. Yeah, I'm surprised by that, but not. Uh, I have to agree with it. I've known I've known Rodney since we were kids, and uh, boy, he is amazing, real sharp. All right, Mark. When uh, we've talked about Valvoline, we often talk about your big streak of four straight race wins in 1993. You've done a lot of things in this sport. What stands out to you about that streak? That that streak in '93 was we were so hot. It was unbelievable. I mean, our cars were so freaking fast and we were just pulling them off and we won. I remember winning the fourth one in a row in Darlington and getting my car to drive home. And, you know, you kind of know the feeling, Dale. It's just surreal. I mean, I'm driving down the road and I'm like, that's incredible, man. Four in a row. And we go to the next week to Richmond and we're about halfway through the race. We're leading by half a lap and I'm running like half throttle because I don't want to get any further away because NASCAR is going to get mad at us and, you know, start messing with us in an inspection or something. <laughs> so it looks like it's going to be five in a row. I mean, it looked like, and then, you know, you get, you know how you get on into the night and, and things uh, change. And for some reason we lost our speed and we didn't win the race, but I really thought, that we were going to win five in a row. Yeah. Well, man, we love that we were able to make Mark part of our Valvoline segment. It just makes sense. It to feels do that. right. Oh, yeah. It feels right. Valvoline, man, they're the original motor. You talked about your podcast. Mark has his own podcast, and he does this uh, very interesting process of doing a podcast for each year. 
of his career in racing, and which is awesome because, like he says, if you want to hear some story, uh, go to the 1977 podcast. There you go. That's where you find it. And when you came on uh, before we got started, you mentioned that, that 1980 and 81 particularly were very interesting years. What made 80 so interesting? Well, 80 was interesting because in 79, I, I still ran a how car, although I moved to Indiana. Dylan, I went to the uh, – in 78, I won the World S- Series of Asphalt Racing, you know, Speed Weeks at New Smyrna, won the championship. But there's no money in it. So I'd already proven, you know, that I could do that. And I also won the ASA championship in 78. So in 79, I wasn't going to go run because it cost too much money to go run it. And I didn't have anything yet to prove. And I was on the free everything, a tire deal with Firestone. Ed Howe gave me chassis and all that stuff. So during that time, they had the Overtrack trade show at Daytona, which is like PRI now. And so I went to Daytona to watch Speed Weeks and to go to the trade show and drum up free stuff. Because I, at that time, it was my program, I, you know, pretty much. I mean, I was funding it. There wasn't much to fund. I didn't have to buy parts anymore. And so the purse money pretty much covered it. So I go down there drumming up free parts, and I meet Ray Dillon, uh, and I hit him up for free springs. And, yeah, uh, you know, you can, you can, we'll put you on a spring deal. And if you want a trailer, we'll put you on a trailer because we build trailers too. And he said, if you want a shop, I'll give you a free shop to work in. And if you want a house, the house next door is 150 a month. I'll rent it to you. Dang. Jeez, most people call That's, this the lottery, yeah. uh, you know, when you win something yeah. like this. I mean, so, my goodness. So in April of 79, so when I get home from Speed Week in March of 79, I moved to Indiana because that's going to be more centrally located to run ASA in Wisconsin, all the art go shows and short tracks. And so Dylan had something in his mind all along. I'm, we're going to design a race car and kill with it. So 79, you know, I race out of there. Uh, Dylan gives me a key to the shop. He don't charge me nothing for anything. I can go over there anytime and use his equipment. I can get parts, whatever. So uh, about two-thirds of the way through the season, he says, let's design a car, you know, because we were running conventional coils. I want to build a tubular – and a Camaro front stand. I want to build a tubular frame, coil over, rack and pinion, car. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you right now, if if we do it, you're going to have to get a surface plate. We're not building this junk in a floor like you are now. These cars you build are junk. And so he gets surface plate, and we we start designing this car, the Dillon Mark II chassis, into 79. So we go into 80 with that car. I think I ran seven, uh, 38 races that year, and I had quick time 33 times. Man, every, Almost every one of them was track record. Everybody, everybody that raced short track had to have one. Trickle had to buy one. Rusty had to buy one. Everybody, everybody had to have that car. And so we owned, we owned them with that car. I mean, it was insane. That's the three spring car from 1980. So explain the three spring car. Yeah. So that car had 62% left side weight and uh, 52% rear weight. And so it was loose everywhere I went. It was fast. We were breaking track records, but that was the year that uh, I broke my ankles and we put Daryl in the car. And I told him before we went, I said, we're going to break the track record and win the race. And we did. But, and I knew we could break the track record because I just set the track record there and it was way too loose. 
So I fought loose all the time. And I noticed when I'd get home and unstrap the right rear on the trailer to unload the car that the spring would be about an inch away. The right rear spring would be about an inch away from the adjuster. It wasn't like that when I'd leave the house, but when I'd get home with the fuel burned off, it would be so, you know, uh, it'd be all, you know, away from the adjuster. And I'm like, that's not right because this thing is like all wedge until it rolls over on that spring and then it starts taking it out. That's bad. What am I going to do about that? Well, I can't figure it out because I've got, I've got a 200 in the left rear and a 150 spring in the right rear. And I've, I've got to have all this wedge. I need more wedge. And I've taken stagger out and the car's always loose and it's the fastest thing out there. So I go to Winchester and at Winchester with all the bank, like Bristol, I had a 500 and a 200 in it, 500 left rear, 200 right rear. And it's loose and I'm down to a quarter inch of rear stagger and it's still loose. And I looked up under it and the springs away from it, an inch and a half. And I'm just pissed. So take that spring out. And I went out and I start out about 55 mile an hour and I speed up, speed up. And everything's okay. So then I dive it down in the corner and it drags it back. And I'm like, you dummy, you got to put a 700 in the left rear. You just took 200 pounds of rear spring out of it. And if you're not going to have a right rear spring, you know, you got to up the 700, put the 700 in it. And the track record was 1604. We ran 50, uh, 1574, broke it by three tenths. And, you know, it's just insane. So it's just, there's stories upon stories and layers to 1980. Also, at the end of 80 is when we start building. I decide, you know, it's time to try cup because they've just downsized the cars to the little cars and everybody's off base. You know, nobody's got it figured out. And this is my third year in a row winning the ASA chip chips time to build a car. So we start building that first cup car to do five races and, uh, building a Bush car Xfinity. Now it's called for five races. And I'm also going to run one Arca race at Talladega. So I'm going to use the Xfinity car to get super speedway experience, but I'm going to run the cup car at short tracks where I think I probably know more about it than the guy, than the cup guys do. Mm. And, uh, so there's a lot of story about building that car. And then 81 tells about, well, that car, that car had 60% left side weight, Junior. I mean, that, that cup car did. Wow. And there's a lot of interesting stories about the setup. It takes me to the third race to figure out the car good enough to get the pole. And then it takes me to the fourth race to figure out how to keep the car from burning the tires off of it. Well, it had 51% rear weight. And when I finally figured out it needed 51% front weight, then I started staying on my tires. We ran third at Martinsville and ran seventh at Richmond with it. So that's what the, I had never been to a cup race garage or pit. I'd never been. All the thing I'd ever been is in the grandstands at Daytona and Talladega yeah. when I started running those five races. So, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff in 80 and 81. So the funny thing about the car with the 700 left rear spring, no spring at all in the right rear <laughs> so um, is so people talk about, Oh, that won't work. You know, uh, oh, everybody said it wouldn't work. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and they still say it today about setups and, and unconventional things. And you can't, it's just funny because we were at, uh, this isn't out there too far, but we were at, I remember being in Atlanta. I think I was a rookie. Maybe it was 2001. 
and we had a two uh, two two inch and a quarter front bar, which in my mind at that time was giant. Mm-hmm. And I said to uh, we've been good in practicing, and I'm standing on the intro stage, and I'm standing with Mark, and I said, Mark, I. He's like, your car's pretty good. I said, yeah, it's got a big, giant front bar. It's like two and a half, two and a quarter front bar in it. I don't think it's going to be very good. It's probably going to get That's tight. right. And he looked at me and said, somebody's going to win a race with a two and a quarter inch bar in it. You might as well be you. Wow. Something along those lines. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> and it is, it really opened my mind up to being willing to try anything and be creative, innovative with your setups. And uh, when people tell you, oh, that won't work, or there's no reason why that would work, don't know you can't go that route. Mark Martin ran a car at Winchester with a 700 left rear spring and no right right. rear spring in it. I mean, that that to me doesn't sound like it would work, but he was three-tenths faster than track record. Uh, Yeah, let me me tell you one other thing about that, too. So as a Dylan House car, I had to give my setups out. So Bob (laughs) Strait. So I did, and I would set cars up for a hundred bucks, which I came. Your dad got a Dylan car, and I came I to, yep. to the shop out back and and set that car up for him. He gave me a hundred bucks, so hundred bucks cash was a lot of money to me at the time, and so I did that. Well, anyway, Bob Strait, <laughs> uh, had, Bob Strait had a Dylan car, and so he after I went down there and figured that setup out, he came and uh, and wanted that setup. We put the setup in his car, and he sat on the outside pole. So it wasn't just yeah, but did, just me. But did, when he saw that for the first time, did he go, "You're not telling the truth. This can't right. be right." <laughs> right. No, these guys thought I walked on water. Oh. They said, "If you're doing it, we're we're doing it." I hear you know. You. So, and uh, now he did run a sixteen oh three. So we still we still <laughs> beat him pretty good. I mean, my cars were really good. The thing is, the thing that I always did: you ran one car all year. And you didn't try, you tried not to tear it up. And so when you'd bring it home, you'd do your regular maintenance and then you'd spend the rest of the week grinding on something, sanding on something or pushing on the body a little bit or pulling or tucking to make the car better. So I, we never stopped it. We worked, me and Banjo worked 17 hours a day. You know, it would just work and work and work and always perfected those cars. So my cars were lighter than anybody's that I raced against, except Blue or Junior Hanley. Junior Hanley and Gary Blue really pushed me hard in the equipment area. Uh, Gary pushed me in the aero and made me really be proactive there. And Junior really pushed in the aero and the the weight thing, too. So we were nuts. I mean anything a quarter of a pound was a lot of weight savings in in one time you know at one setting yeah i try to talk to um our late model drivers that drive for us at junior motorsports to get them to read gary's book and to learn more about gary more about you more about that particular time especially going down to the world uh the daytona speed weeks stuff where basically it was kind of run whatever you want on the body but I, I try to push my guys to learn, lean into y'all's careers and learn about them because of the innovation and yes. the creativity and how you and uh, Blue all kind of elevated each other and really made each other go as far as you possibly could on every little part and piece on the car, the body, and everything else. Because, you know, the guys today, they build the cars kind of like a kit. 
and then they take them out on the racetrack. And I look at the I look at the bodies and things, and I'm like, man, you're giving up so much opportunity. And it's all these little things that add up. And so uh, I encourage those guys to to dive back into that era, that that late '70s, early '80s sort of era of of uh, super late models and ASA, because that was a lot of ingenuity and stuff that still works today. Uh, that guys aren't even doing to their cars today. I know it. And, and Mark, your conversation with Gary Ballou on your podcast, I think I learned more about racing just at listening to you guys talk about this stuff than I have anywhere else. And it, it was amazing, and it, and it made me wonder, and hearing you were sort of giggling over here just listening to you talk about springs and, and, and setups, I always wonder, have you ever, you always seem to be the guy that didn't mind telling people what, your setups were and helping with others have you ever told somebody or have you ever misled them on your setup have you ever told somebody a setup that was not actually what you were running no rusty did though i was standing right with rusty, <laughs> I went and watched rusty one night and this guy come up and he said how much rusty how much toe you run he said i run five eights in you know and i'm like jesus he's lying his tail off you know? <laughs> but rusty was always honest with me we were always i if I hated a guy and he came up and asked me, I probably would have lied to him, but I never did hate anybody. Um, I was always willing to tell anybody what I had that w- it was an honor for me to me that they would ask me. Wow. If they'd come up and ask me, I was honored and I would be happy to tell them because I was going to beat them anyway. Wow. And, 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 you know, that was the way it was. I got into NASCAR and we talked a lot less, but still Rusty, if Rusty had three bad weeks in a row and wasn't running good, he'd come up and say, Mark, what he got? And I'd tell him everything. Same thing turned around. If I had to go, you know, running bad and couldn't find my way, I'd go to Rusty and ask Rusty what he had. And he'd tell me every bit of it, honestly. But I never did mind telling people what I had because – I, I, but if you want one time when I lied, the first race I took my cup car, I knew cup cars had 125 to 150 pounds of lead. That's what a good, a normal cup car had, short track cup car. Well, my cup car had 600 pounds of lead in it. Oh, <laughs> wow. And so, and this is in the 1981 podcast. So Jake Elder, and I didn't know who he was. I was, the first race was North of Wilkesboro. And I qualified fifth, but I burned a gear up in the race. And I was sitting on the, on the trailer fender of my open trailer, waiting for the pace shack to open up. And this guy walks up and he looks over in the car. He looks at me and he said, you only got two gauges. I said, yeah, that's all you need. Water temperature and oil pressure. He says, you ain't got no tack. And I said, no, you don't need one. <laughs> Cause I was, you know, I was pretty full of myself at this point. In time. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, and then he says, how much lead you got in this car? And now Jake Elder's paying attention. Cause he ain't never seen me before in his life, but he's seen this guy come. They don't know qualified fifth. And he might not have been super educated, but he's smart enough to know he need to be looking at my car and see what's the heck's going on. So he said, how much lead you got in this car? And I wasn't prepared for that. I hadn't thought about anybody ever asking me that. So I lied and said 400 pounds. And he almost fell out. You know, Jake. Oh, Hell yeah. You know, you know how Jake was. He couldn't believe it. Then he looks at me and he says, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, no. 
He said, J.C. Elder. And I looked at him like deer in the headlights because I didn't know what he – and then he said, Jake Elder. And I, oh, yeah. I, you know, I knew who Jake was. I didn't know who J.C. was. J.C. Right. Elder. So all that, that – those stories are in the 81 podcast. But, yeah. yeah, that's really the only time I ever really re- lie in about a setup. But you didn't even lie. You still, like, shot pretty high. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. You still gave them something that blew their doors off, yeah. right? 81 was a tough year, though. So, you know, you drove for J.D. Stacy a couple races. Was that 82? That's 83. 83, ooh. 82 and 83 were devastating. Career losers and demolished and, and uh, took me from riding uh, high to completely on my knees. What happened? 82. Uh, well, first of all, I didn't realize how hard it would be to run a full schedule because I ran five races. Mm. There was a month in between. We prepared for every race with my little guys. I, at that time, I had three full-time employees uh, in, in 81 doing those races and doing what I was doing. So I was not prepared for how hard it would be to run all the races and I wanted to run all the races and run for Rookie of the Year. And I was running against Jeff Bodine in uh, the 50 car. Uh, and that was a, a good good team, uh, really a winning team. Yeah. And so, so um, and I did a deal with uh, Apache Stoves for $50,000 sponsorship. And they never, they, they went out of business, never paid never paid. And so I didn't have any sponsorship and, uh, my crew chief at Daytona, uh, got, uh, inebriated the night before the 500 and didn't show up at the racetrack my goodness. Uh, Sunday morning. And so they, and then we blew up in the race. And so we left Daytona with a, a team in shambles, broke no money. And, you know, it just, it was terrible. So, by the end of 80, and then Jeff Bodine beat me anyway. Daryl Walter pleaded with me, Mark, please go to a limited schedule. You know, please. And I was just too hard-headed and wouldn't give up. I was going to beat Jeff Bodine. Well, he beat me anyway. And so at the end of the season, I had to have an auction because I owned all my stuff. Yeah, it technically Bud Reader was called the car owner. What he did was he paid for the cars, and then I paid everything else. He didn't pay any bills. He just supplied me a car. It was like the house car deal I had with, with Dylan. Yeah. He gave Dylan gave me the car and then I operated it. And then I gave it back when I was finished with it. And that was the same thing with Bud Reader. So I was broke and I, and I owed heck I owed Hutchinson Pagan, I think 50 grand. So we had to have an auction and sell everything I owned and I paid everybody off. And then Tim Richmond had drove for Stacy in the two car in 82 and he had gone to blue max and it opened up the two car and he'd won a couple of races in that car. And yep. I got a shot at the car, but at the same time they shut off the money. The car was on the winter circle and Stacy had gotten another financial thing and shut off the money. So they were operating only on the, you know, the winter circle money and the purse money. And so it was not the same thing. Dale Lemon wasn't there anymore. Dale Lemon left. He was had been the crew chief, and Booby Harrington was a crew chief. And I didn't think Booby was that good, and he didn't think I was that good. And after we ran uh, seventh at Atlanta on used tires and third at Darlington, we went to Martinsville, 
early in the race and I tangled with your dad and, uh, uh, going into the corner and spun out and got hit and messed the car up. So I got fired, uh, the next day and they wanted to put someone in the car with more experience. So they put Morgan Shepard in the car and that left me pretty much in trouble. Morgan McClure came along, uh, but they were before they were any good. They had an old cut cutlass that was horrendously pitiful, terrible. GC <laughs> Spencer was the crew chief. He was outdated. Damn. I was real progressive and he was totally outdated. We didn't get along. They had a really nice speedway car. I got to drive at Talladega and ran good in, but, uh, I, I, I didn't get along with GC Spencer at the end of the year. I didn't call them back and they didn't call me back. And so I picked up my stuff and moved back to Wisconsin and started my career all over again. Mm. Now it was hard to start all over again. Let me tell you how hard it was. I had nothing, nothing to my name. And I, the first guy I called Ray Dillon to get me my house car program. Mm. He said, Mark, the days of free cars are over. Wow. I, I, you know, I knew I could go to prototype and get an engine deal. Ron Neal, you know, had, had, uh, you know, been my engine program for since 81 and I had gotten them into NASCAR. Uh, they used prototypes at, uh, the, the Stacy thing. They closed up their engine in the two car engine program and used prototypes. And so I got them that in, engine deal down there in NASCAR and all. So I, I could get an engine deal, but I was going to have to find somebody that had a truck, a trailer and could supply me with cars. And they did. And one full-time employee. And so it was me and one other guy starting my career all over again and building the cars from scratch and hanging the bodies and, uh, and going back short track racing. And we had volunteer help that came in at night. So me and my guy, Doug Hahn, would work all day. We'd go in in the morning and work all day. And then at night, the help would come in and then we'd stay and help work with the help all night. So it was a very tough time in my career. Humbling, Dale, I would not be the person I am today had I not failed because I was on such a roll before that for that 82 season. I, I was pretty full of myself. I was so full of myself that after that fifth race in 1981, when I sat on two poles, finished third and seventh with my own little car out of Indiana, the phone rang. I was my shop was a pole barn without insulation in Indiana, Northern Indiana. The phone rang. It was a slimline phone on them dial phones. I'm standing there. Answer the phone. Hello, Mark. This is Waddell Wilson. Like to see if you'd be interested in driving the 28 car. And I said, No, I'd rather do my own deal. <laughs> Whoa! That was it. That was it. So I could have been in the 28 car at the Daytona 500 in 1982. Wow. Holy. I'm not saying that would hire me, sure. but I was scared to go drive that car because it was great at Daytona and Talladega, but Kel Yarbrough was a hell of a driver. Yeah. And I, and I didn't think those cars for everywhere else was as good as cars I could build. Right. And I was afraid I would go down there and be strapped with cars that weren't good enough for me 
because I believed at the time that the reason I won races is because I knew more about cars than everybody else. You get that, don't you? I, I do. mean, absolutely. But, yeah, but, but when you lose everything, I'd imagine it shook your foundation. Did you ever consider giving it up? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I thought about it, but what would I do? Right. I mean, my dad asked me if I wanted to come back to Arkansas and run the trucking business. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I race. Yeah. That's what I do. You know, I won the, you know, ASA three championships in a row. I race, man. I, I'm not going to. That's what I do. And so I didn't even consider going back to Arkansas. And I just dug in and started making phone calls and found uh, a guy in, in uh, Beaverdam, Wisconsin, who had one late model and was willing to build another one so that we'd have two, an ASA car and an art go car, one with a big body on it and one with a, you know, stocker body that would run ASA, uh, build a Handley car. And so we moved up there and I went to work and, um, and started my career all over again. That's right around the same time. The first time I met Mark Martin, I came downstairs. Dad is living at the lake house at this particular time. And I moved in with dad in 1981 but I come downstairs, and Dad and Teresa and Mark Martin are in the basement. Uh, Dad had a pool table down there in the TV, and y'all were watching your races, your ASA races. Uh, and there was a VCR or a beta, I'm not sure which one it was, and an Atari in the cabinet. <laughs> and y'all were sitting there watching these races, and I'm like, man, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, and Mark is playing Dad. Um, you know, Nash, I think one of the races was Nashville, uh, the All-American 400, or I can't remember. It was all kinds of races that we sit there and watched um, of you after you kind of, like you say, you got your, got your career re- restarted and went back to dominating. Um, Do you remember this, Mark? Obviously, we would, right? Yes, that that was January 1982 is when oh, wow. that was. He detailed and, that. Yeah. And I had just moved to Charlotte, and I was in the – bush clash and and dale wasn't so when we finished washing my races he said let me show you how to win the bush clash <laughs> wow and he, and he put his race in and we watched <laughs> wow. watched him i mean yeah. that's crazy wow yeah yeah when did you like i imagine at this point you knew him pretty well right i mean when did you guys become at least friendly enough to come over to the house and watch old races I don't really understand. I don't remember. Uh, evidently, we must have picked up conversations in 81 when I was at the racetracks, you know, doing the, the five cup races and the five bush races. And we raced against each other in the bush races because that 81 was the year when uh, Baloo and, and Dale tangled. Oh, yes. And, oh. and Dale said Baloo was the dirtiest driver he in the in the world or yes. uh, he'd ever seen or whatever well i ran second in that race that's right uh so uh i was right there that was crazy that t- i was running fifth at the time and when whoever turned sideways i don't know if it was blue or or, or dale turned sideways the tires started bowling smoke i thought somebody blew a motor i slammed on the brakes uh, you know i just was green man i'd not no super speedway experience and and was just learning but uh, anyway, Bill and I evidently talked enough 
and he had respect enough uh, of where I came from to invite me up to the house. And, uh, and so I came up there in January and, sh you know, I wanted to show him where I came from and my races because I was proud. And when we finished up, he said, let me show you how to win which yeah. clash. Cause I thought that, was uh, cool. yeah. He, Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, it, Mark Martin's not going to forget any details, but I bet I'm willing to bet that Dale jr. Is the only one that could remember that there was an Atari sitting was, there as well. Well, I remember playing it. I was, eight, <laughs> I was eight years old, eight years old. Of course. Atari's were it, man. So Mark, you went back home and you got going. So what came first? Uh, when you got, you went back to ASA, back to the late models, the 31, I remember you coming and racing in Xfinity Series, the Bush Series, and the 31 Bush National Ford. That, so what came me, first between yeah. that car and, and the Roush deal? How did all that? So, so how I got to the 31 car was David Lovendahl was my brother-in-law, ex-brother-in-law. He's actually divorced my sister. When I left Arkansas to go to North Liberty, Indiana in April of 1979, I needed an employee. Banjo was with me, Banjo Grimm, but I needed another one. Uh, so, you know, I hit David up to go too. So David came and he, they, they were my two employees. Paid them a hundred bucks a week cash. Um, and so my overhead was $200 a week uh, for uh, most all my parts for free. So, so anyway, um, I had a, David stayed with me all through the first years. He, I think he was the one that left the rag in the carburetor at Richmond in 1981 when I was on the pole and the car wouldn't start. And I had to start a lap down at the end of the field uh, by the time I got out on the racetrack. And so uh, anyway, David and I knew each other. Well, we had parted ways, you know, after that, not after that, but somewhere along the way, you know, he'd gone his way and I'd gone my way. So, in 84, when I was up there in Beaver Dam and getting my feet back under me, that wasn't a well-financed team. And so in 85, I got the opportunity to drive for Jerry Gunderman. Well, Jerry Gunderman fielded uh, ASA cars for Bobby Allison, had the Miller sponsorship, had Jimmy Finney and Jeffrey Finney mm. working there at the shop. So, heck yeah, I was going to be the full-time ASA guy, and Bobby was going to run part-time mm. in his spare time out of that shop. So I went there in 85 and we won four races in 85, but we didn't win the championship because we broke some motors. And so in 86, Jimmy was my crew chief. Of course, in 86, we won the ASA championship. Well, toward the end of 86, Bobby Allison starts asking Jimmy Finney to come be his cup crew chief. <laughs> and David Lovendahl called me and said, I'm going to start a, a Bush team. My brother-in-law, uh, or uh, my father-in-law, Bruce Lawmaster, is going to fund it, and we're going to start this team. And I thought, yeah, I just won the ASA championship. I need to make more money than I'm making. This is an opportunity to race on a on a bigger stage. I wasn't thinking about Cup at the time. I was thinking about you know getting in into Bush Series. So, and Jimmy kept telling me, he says, "If you stay, I'm staying." Well, I wanted Jimmy to go be a Cup crew chief. And I needed to go try to make more money uh, because I had a family, uh, you know, wife and four little girls. So, which was kind of new, 84 is when I got married. So uh, I saw the, the opportunity, so I took it. So we went and ran the Bush car 
we built, uh, we did the full season in 80, 87 with two cars. We had a super speedway car, intermediate car, super speedways, and a short track car, open trailer, and two employees and myself. And by Dover, you know, Dover is usually in May. By Dover, we won our first race. Yep. Uh, two weeks later, we won at Orange County. And I'd been with Ford since 84. When I, when I went back ASA racing, I hit Ford up to, you know, be participate in my deal. And they had given me, you know, like a $15,000 sponsorship deal for Motorcraft. So I'd been in Fords for three years. So I was kind of considered a Ford driver. That's we built a Ford Bush car in 87. And so I was in the only full-time Bush Ford car. Yeah, out there are there. no Fords out there. No, you had to run a V8 against the V6s and you had to run a weight penalty. So it wasn't really a, uh, the way to go. But we won mm-hmm. Dover despite that, won Orange County. Wow. And then Bud Moore starts calling. Steve Mill calls and says, Hey, we're you know, Jack Roush is going to do this deal. You know, we're going to, Jack's going to call you. Did you know Steve? Oh, yeah. I knew Steve from 82. Mm. Steve. Not everybody knew who I was, and not everybody treated me. A lot of people t- treated me like I was just a guy at the racetrack racing, yeah. which is fine. That That's fine. But Steve was a crew guy that treated me like your dad did, like Bobby Allison did, like Tara Waltrip did, who knew where I came from and what I had done and accomplished. He treated me with so much respect. And I never forgot that. He would come up and talk to me and, and pay respect in 82. So I knew Steve well. I was right in his backyard. He was in Pleasant Garden. I was over there in Randleman. And so uh, he kept saying, Jack, going to call you. Well, months and months and months passed by. And he'd call me. So Jack's going to call you. And I'm like, yeah, right. He called me. And uh, nothing ever transpired with Bud Moore. And I think there was some interest. Some people were asking questions. But finally, Jack Roush called. He said, I'd like to talk to you about driving, you know, and building cup team. And I knew all that because Steve had told me, come up to Detroit. So I flew up to Detroit and Jack showed me all his stuff. And Jack said, I've got $4 million. I'm going to run two years on my money. You know, I don't have, don't need a sponsorship. I got backing from Ford. And we're going to have Steve Mill, Robin Pemberton. Here's the deal. It's it's a you know limited schedule. We're going to do this deal. He told me all everything about his plan, all the hardware. You'll buy all the tires you need. You know everything we need to do. And he didn't say anything. And I didn't ask about what he was going to pay me when he finished uh, telling me all that stuff. I said, Well, I want to do it. We stood up, shook hands, and I about fell out. I mean, I honestly got dizzy from standing up and shaking hands because most people don't get their first chance, much less a second chance. And I didn't, it's funny because he's the one that brought it up later. I didn't ask him what he's going to pay me. And I found out it wasn't much. (laughs) Jack was a guy that always put the money into the hardware Mm. and he didn't put the money into the people. He believed in getting people like Steve Neal, Robin Pemberton, and and all these kind of guys that were smart and really wanted it mm. and could 
could, and he would give them the tools to succeed. And he likes doing that. And if you'll think about it, the hero that Jack Roush is, his real legacy is he never hired before Ryan Newman, you know, just last year, he never hired a successful driver until he hired Jamie McMurray. And I had to beg him and beg him, beg him to hire Jamie because I wanted him to hire Jamie to replace, you know, to take the six car. I wanted Jamie to drive the six car and, and take it. And then things got screwed up and I didn't leave. Uh, Kurt left and they needed me to stay another year. So he, Jamie wound up over in the 97, but um, yeah, Jack brought it up. Like, dude, he didn't, I didn't make nothing. I mean, Brett Bodine was making twice as much money as I was making driving for Jed Bud Moore as I was making driving for Jack. And it bothered me. Yeah. And, and that's, that's in my podcast too. My relationship with Jack was very, very difficult. Uh, cold. He was very cold uh, for, for years and he didn't treat me with respect. He intimidated me and kept me down, you know, and I was scared of him and it took, it took years for that relationship, uh, you know, to, to, to really develop. All right, guys, uh, our Mark Martin interview went really long and I wanted it to. And the reason why is because I'm going to split it into two parts. You just heard part one. Hope you enjoyed it. It was great. I expected it to be. Can't wait for you to hear part two coming at a later episode. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or the property. It's the location and neighborhood, Dalton. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when we say in-depth, we're talking deep in-depth. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, a home, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. What's up, everybody? Listening to the second best podcast on the Dirty Mo platform, Dale Jr. Download. Freddie Kraft here. And when you're ready to listen to a podcast with real, unfiltered opinions directly from the track, Check us out on Door Bumper Clear. Yo, Brett Griffin, spotter for Clint Boyer. Today we'll talk about the bad spotter views at Indy, the scary pit road pileup, and cars blowing tires all day on Sunday. TJ Major is here, and make sure you listen to Door Bumper Clear this week and every week on all major podcasting platforms. What's next, pal? Uh, Odd history. All right, guys, Odd history. The odd history title is stuck. <laughs> I'm going to uh, ultra creative. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just letting you know what the odd history title is because I haven't read this. I'm reading it with you, learning about it. The title is stuck from Matthew Dillner. <laughs> We've heard before uh, about drivers, uh, several of them having dreams that they show up on the grid and they've forgotten their helmet or something. Uh, and we're not able to start the race. I've had those dreams. Oh, I've heard about this a lot, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I hear like about it. Showing oh. up in your underwear, right? 
or yeah. some, being late. Oh, God. Being, yeah. Waking up, being late, have that dream all the time. Not anymore, because I did. Because it was so much a reality in your past. <laughs> <laughs> I bet no driver has ever dreamed of what happened to a cup driver at New Hampshire Motor Speedway in 2006. This is recent. The nightmare happened to Ted Christopher. He was an innocent victim. TC was driving for Kirk Shelmerdine and had qualified 43rd in the Lily Trucking Chevrolet. He strapped into his car for the Sylvania 300 on a beautiful New Hampshire day. But Christopher wasn't allowed to take the green flag. You see, his spotter, his spotter was stuck in an elevator. <laughs> Talk about a panic moment. What happened was, before the race was about to start, a car crash on a nearby street knocked out a power line and cut the electricity off for the track. His spotter was taking an elevator to the spotter stand at the moment the power went out, trapping him inside. This prevented him from reporting to his post. As NASCAR requires all cars to have spotters, Christopher was held in the pits until the electricity was restored on lap four of the race. I was in that race. My day started in 13th position and ended in the lucky 13th position. Poor TC obviously didn't have any luck. He ended up having brake issues, finishing 41st. It turned out to be the final Cup Series start for the legendary Connecticut short track driver. Stuck! By Matthew Dillner. And NASCAR man. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, NASCAR man. NASCAR man gave us the exciting parts. I don't. NASCAR man uh, is a great follow on social media. You Go definitely wrote the lead to that, though, didn't you? <laughs> but NASCAR yeah. man, you might want to bring in the titles <laughs> and the lead. The lead was. Uh, you oh, know the how lead drivers was okay. Are dreaming about losing their helmets. Well, let me tell you about a story that has nothing to do with dreams or helmets. Oh, it's <laughs> a dream segue. All right, speaking of dreams, last call. Well, that was a terrible segue. Last call. All right, guys, last call. It's last call. The show's over. That's when last call happens, at the end. That's right. That's why they call it last call. <laughs> we are about one week away from Lost Speedways. Lost Speedway. So Lost Speedways is a television show that Dirty Mo Media, everybody basically in this room, helped create for Peacock, which is NBC's new streaming platform. July the 15th, you'll be able to, will they be able to watch them all? Yes. yes. You'll be able to just watch them all on July 15th. Whole yeah. show. Whole season. Whole season, right. Binge. Um, and please do, because I'm eager. Uh, you know, Matthew, I know you guys are. You speak for yourselves. I'm eager for feedback. So, uh, And I'm also eager to find out whether we get a second season. And so if, uh, you know, you guys watch it, maybe you'll get some positive reaction out there to Peacock and NBC, and they'll want us back. The few people that you have let seen sneak peeks, though, the feedback was what? Like, you know what you're telling about? Amazing. That's right. Good. Make more, please. <laughs> that was the feedback I got. If you're an Xfinity customer, you get Peacock TV, the streaming platform that Lost Speedway is being provided to you on for free. Mm-hmm. That's cool. All right, Dale Jr. Uh, download the TV show is on NBCSN Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN. You guys wanted Mark Martin. You got him. I didn't uh, expect any less. He was great. And uh, just he's, he's just a cool dude. One of the guys that's just always been a cool dude, and he's still a cool dude. So uh, great follow on social media. 
And um, he's a legend. Hall of Famer, Mark Martin. Thanks for coming on, Mark. We're going to have a second part uh, of this interview coming up at another in another episode. Um, so uh, tune in for part two of Mark Martin. Hope you guys enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next week. This bit of badassery was made by Dirty Mo Media. Dirty Mo.